Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. In this Black History Month, we begin today with a conversation about an important aspect of black history here in Maryland concerning breaking the color barrier in the legal profession. Next Thursday night, the University of Baltimore School of Law will host an event with two attorneys and legal historians who will talk about the first black lawyers in Maryland. The decades-long efforts by black lawyers to be admitted to the Maryland bar predated the NAACP and finally succeeded long after other southern states had already seen their color barriers broken. The two historians who will be presenting the program at UB next week join me today here on Midday. John Browning is a former judge on the Texas 5th District Court of Appeals. He's a trial lawyer with the Spencer Fain firm in Plano, Texas, and he is a distinguished jurist in residence at the Faulkner University Thomas Good Jones School of Law, and he joins us on Zoom from Montgomery, Alabama. Justice Browning, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. And Dominique Flowers is staff attorney at the Maryland Pro Bono Resource Center here in Baltimore, where he works with the Courtroom Advocacy Project. Mr. Flowers, welcome to you as well. It's a pleasure, Tom. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you both for being here. Um, So, uh, Justice Browning, let's start with um, your interest in this subject. You're a white former judge from Texas. How did you get uh, interested in the history of, uh, you know, black lawyers here in the state of Maryland? Well, you know, I have uh, been uh, interested in legal history, all varieties of legal history, um, you know, dating back to my undergraduate days. And I was actually very fortunate at Rutgers to uh, study under, um, you know, uh, some preeminent um, African-American historians um, as part of getting my my history degree. And then after becoming a lawyer, I was uh, blessed to um, uh, receive the mentorship of uh, Chief Justice Carolyn Wright. Uh, She's now retired, but she was the uh, first black person to win a uh, multi-county election in the state of Texas and the first uh, black woman to be chief justice of an appellate court in Texas. And uh, so I've been uh, uh, friends and and, uh, uh, just uh, blessed to be a mentee of uh, Chief Justice Wright for many years. And uh, I always joke that I'm the one who writes about history, but she is someone who literally made history. And uh, I was, uh, uh, I don't think I would have become an appellate judge if it weren't for, you know, um, her inspiration and being a role model uh, to me and, uh, and really helping nurture this interest in black legal history. And, uh, Mr. Flowers, there is, in fact, a museum of Baltimore legal history. I didn't know that before I started preparing for our conversation. Uh, tell us the kinds of things that are uh, on display or in the collection of uh, the Legal History Museum here in our fair city. Certainly. So the Legal History Museum was actually uh, created in 1984. Um, it's actually the former orphan's courtroom um, before it was refashioned into the Legal History Museum. Um, it features uh, several articles from not only Baltimore, but Maryland's legal history. Um, it's got the robe of the first black um, chief uh, judge, uh, Judge Bell, who was the first black um, attorney who um, made it to that rank. It also happens to feature the first um, petition for the first black lawyers um, 
who were assigned into becoming lawyers in the mid 1800s. So it features over a hundred articles. I actually had the occasion to document each of those articles as part of a project for my master's degree. Um, so it's certainly worth the visit. Um, it's it's stationed right outside the jury room on the second floor. So um, I advise the listeners if you have some free time, go down to the Mitchell Courthouse and take a look at it. Yeah, next time you're on jury duty, you might be able to sneak in and uh, take a look. And I'm I'm very blessed to have had the opportunity to interview Judge Bell a couple of times. And Justice Browning, um, you write in an article that's uh, going to appear in the UB Law Forum, a publication at the University of Baltimore School of Law, that it's never too late to address the injustices of the past. So this history uh, is important. Um, why Why do you think it's important uh, for the legal profession and for the, the, the lay audience to understand? Well, you know, we, we have these milestones, like, you know, uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And when she uh, took her oath of office, she acknowledged that she stood on the shoulders of so many that had come before her, uh, folks like Maryland's own, you know, Thurgood Marshall uh, and so many others. But uh, what many people don't realize, Tom, is that the story goes back even further than that uh, to earlier in our history than many folks are aware of when very, uh, I think, courageous, um, uh, you know, black lawyers and aspiring uh, attorneys uh, decided uh, to try to enter the legal profession and uh, become attorneys and um, represent uh, the uh, black community and to, uh, you know, fight the very first of the civil rights battles long before ones that we may be more familiar with in the 20th century. And the article uh, that uh, Justice Browning wrote uh, concerns uh, four lawyers, uh, Mr. Flowers, Edward Draper, Charles Taylor, Charles Wilson, and Everett Waring, uh, who uh, Justice Browning calls the a, a forgotten first. Um, but those were certainly, those were names uh, that are important to the history of black lawyers here in Maryland that were brand new to me. I mean, I've obviously uh, heard and read about Justice Marshall. Uh, we have Charles Hamilton Houston, the the uh, lawyer for the NAACP, uh, who, uh, you know, hails from Maryland. Um, so there are a couple of big names that, that even I, as a non-legal scholar, you know, uh, recognized. Um, but but uh, th- these are names. Uh, are they known, do you think, within the legal profession? Is it just the fact that I'm a layperson uh, that, that accounts for the fact I've never heard of them? Or do you have a sense that many of your colleagues in the legal profession have never heard of them, too? Unfortunately, Tom, you'll find that you're not alone. Um, uh, you know, those names, unless you read one of the articles that have the t- uh, John wrote or myself, you won't really hear them in mainstream discussion in terms of uh, lawyers in the past um, or if you go to the Legal History Museum. So it's unfortunate that most legal scholars and most historians are unaware of them. Um, I think it's important, like uh, John stated, that we need to um you know, inform the public of the importance of black lawyers and the struggles that they've had to come through, especially through Maryland's history. Um, interestingly enough, in Maryland was one of the first states to actually feature a statute preventing black lawyers from even being um, considered um, to practice law or, or black people being considered to practice law. And so you have that long struggle that they took. And it's really a shame that um, their names aren't really well known. I mean, we know that the likes of Thurgood Marshall and obviously, you know, he he had a lot of um, great esteem as the first black Supreme Court justice. But I think 
um, these other lawyers, um, Charles Wilson, Everett Waring, he was a Howard Law graduate, much like myself. I think we need to do a, do a better job of, of pushing the names and ensuring that they deserve the spotlight that they deserve. Dominic Flowers is staff attorney at the Maryland Pro Bono Resource Center here in Baltimore. John Browning's a former judge in the Texas Fifth District Court of Appeals. He's a trial lawyer now and on the faculty of the Faulkner University Thomas Good Jones School of Law as a distinguished jurist in residence there in my Montgomery, Alabama. They joined me on Zoom. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments today. So, Justice Browning, um, as uh, Dominique Flowers just mentioned, you know some of the big names: Charles Hamilton, Houston, Thurgood Marshall. Um, you might get the impression that, in fact, Maryland was kind of progressive when it came to uh, having black lawyers admitted to the Maryland. Bar, but in fact, Maryland was by no means at the vanguard of this effort. Uh, tell us about some of the other states, which might surprise folks, certainly surprise <laughs> me, that had uh, black lawyers admitted to their bars well before the state of Maryland. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Maryland was actually kind of brought up the rear when it uh, comes to, um, you know, former Confederate states or slaveholding states that um, you know, would later uh, welcome black lawyers. Um, you know, Arkansas uh, had their first black lawyer in 1866, uh, Tennessee and South Carolina in 1868, uh, state like Mississippi, 1869. Uh, others were in the, you know, early to mid 1870s. Uh, Georgia, um, uh, you know, had their first black lawyer in 1878. Uh, yet, despite this, um, you know, the uh, Maryland bars racially restrictive statute withstood uh, repeated challenges until 1885. I mean, we don't get our, our first uh, black lawyer admitted to practice uh, in Maryland until 1885, which is shocking. It is shocking that that all those states in the Confederacy uh, were the first to uh, admit black lawyers to their bars. And, and Dominique Flowers, what is it in those days, in, you know, the, the Civil War era and directly after the Civil War, what did it mean to to study law? How did one become a lawyer? I mean, I assume there weren't law schools like we have now. And, you you know, you pass out of law school and take a bar exam. Um, what was the what was the procedure for becoming a lawyer uh, back in those days? Most black lawyers, um, in order to become lawyers, their their first intention was to be admitted to the state bar. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case, um, at least for the first half of the decade or uh, following the Civil War. Uh, so the way that they actually had to go about it was to read the law. So they had to study with a lawyer, who's usually who was a white lawyer, and hope that they would gain enough knowledge in order to practice law. So Draper, he was certified and qualified to practice law in 1857. But he wasn't admitted to the to the bar of Maryland, and you know when you when you talk about the Civil War, you have to mention you know the Fourteenth Amendment, nineteen sixty eight, which guaranteed um, rights of African American citizenship, eighteen seventy, Fifteenth Amendment, which allowed black men to vote. So we had some some really um, some real legislation that was assisting black people in Maryland and the reconstruct during the Reconstruction era. But in terms of um, practicing law, you know, you've got several challenges between 1877 and 1885 to strike down that law that, that John referred to. We really don't see a lot of um, a lot of headway until 1875 when the first um, black lawyer was admitted to the Maryland federal court. Um, that was James Wolfe. 
And then in 1877 is one of the first challenges to that law in Henry in, in V. Taylor, um, which was unsuccessful. And so you don't really see um, a lot of success until 1885 when that law was finally um, overturned um, as a violation of the 14th Amendment. And uh, Justice Browning, uh, one of the lawyers you write about was admitted to the federal bar, but not to the state of Maryland bar. That was incredible yes. to me to read. Uh, tell us how that's how that was even possible back then, how how the federal government could say, oh, yeah, you're okay with us, <laughs> but the state of Maryland can say, nope, we don't want you. So James Wolfe, uh, who Mr. Flowers mentioned, uh, this is a guy who attended Harvard Law School, one of the few actual you know, law school uh, programs at the time. And he also read the law uh, under uh, the tutelage of a uh, former Massachusetts congressman. And he came from Massachusetts, uh, where he was admitted uh, to practice, moved to Maryland and said, look, you know, um, you know, some of my work is going to be in federal court. Uh, There were uh, lawyers like U.S. attorneys who were somewhat more tolerant um, and had no problem you know, even sponsoring him. And so, um, but unfortunately at that time, uh, for really all lawyers, not just, you know, a black lawyer versus a white lawyer, uh, there was considerably more work to be done, more business uh, in the state courts than the federal courts. And so Wolf, while he was admitted to practice in the U.S. Circuit Court in Maryland, um, you know, wanted to challenge along with Charles Taylor, uh, you know, Maryland's state statute uh, that discriminated. Um, now, Wolf, um, uh, for his own personal reasons, dropped out of the case, went back to Massachusetts, where he goes on to a distinguished career in the state adjutant general's office, uh, gets appointed by the governor. Uh, but Charles Taylor, as Mr. Flowers mentioned, uh, is, uh, you know, uh, pressing forward w- with the suit. And it ultimately, uh, even though Taylor uh, is admitted to practice and uh, federal courts in Maryland, um, and you would think that that would certainly speak to their qualifications as well as being admitted in another state uh, that's seen fit to find them uh, qualified to practice. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the uh, Maryland courts at that time um, took a different interpretation of the 14th Amendment. They said, well, you know, getting admitted to practice in a particular state, you know, bar admission, that's what we call a state privilege. And under the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, it's really not a federal thing. Uh, we wouldn't have that more expansive and, I would argue, you know, proper reading of the 14th Amendment and the Privileges and Immunities Clause uh, until later, until 1885. And uh, Dominic uh, Flowers, with the uh, in the case of uh, Edward Garrison Draper, uh, who we've mentioned a little bit in 1857, the same year that uh, uh, the uh, Dred Scott decision came down, uh, he was uh, given an examination by a guy named uh, Judge Zacchaeus Collins Lee. Uh, and what did Judge Lee? Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about who Judge Lee was, and uh, w- what what was his. Um, assessment uh, of Edward Garrison Draper, uh, who you know had read the law and then applied uh, to Judge Lee. So Judge Lee was one of the um, judges for the Supreme Court of Baltimore. So this was one of the older courts. It's, it's no longer in ex- existence now. Um, but after um, studying with Judge Lee, um, you know he found that he was qualified to practice law. As a matter of fact, he coined it as. Uh, you know, Draper was deemed qualified and certified 
to practice law. That meant that he had all of the the mental faculties, the intelligence to practice law, and he certified them. However, being certified to practice law is is far from being admitted to the state bar association, which allows you to practice law. Um, so, you know, even being certified to practice law didn't really give him any advantage. And again, as you mentioned, that was the same uh, year that the Dred Scott case that came down where, you know, blacks weren't even seen as people. They were seen as property in some instances. So, you know, unfortunately, Draper never had the opportunity to actually make, um, you know, take advantage of that. He actually had to immigrate back to Liberia. Um, and so, you know, we see a young a, a gentleman who's capable as a black attorney. I mean, before him, uh, the first black attorney was actually uh, Macon. And he was a, a lawyer who practiced. Uh, he was the first black lawyer. And I believe he was uh, uh, he passed the bar or he was licensed in Maine in 1844, uh, Macon Boeing Allen and practiced in Boston. And now we have almost a decade later, another gentleman who's equally qualified. So we did have a, a segment of lawyers who were qualified well before the Civil War, um, you know, during the antebellum region. But unfortunately, you know, the powers to be just didn't see fit for them to actually allow them. Yeah, and that, uh, Justice Browning, uh, really surprised me when I read your article that there were people, uh, you know, admitted to the bar 20 years before the Civil War, uh, black attorneys. That's just really it's, quite astonishing. It, it really is. And I'm actually working on a book about Macon Balling Allen um, and had the privilege of speaking about him um, uh, for the Underground Railroad Freedom Center uh, last summer. Uh, to kind of piggyback on on uh, Mr. Flowers' comments, uh, Judge Lee is, is, you know, quite a character. He's a first cousin of Robert E. Lee. Uh, he's a slave owner himself. We know this because their newspaper uh, advertisements where he posted rewards for the capture and return uh, of, of two of his um, um, uh, enslaved uh, individuals. Um, and his um, being kind of um, amenable to, you know, finding um, uh, Edward Garrison Draper qualified, you know, came with a huge asterisk. Um, you know, he he basically said, yes, you know, <laughs> this to this Dartmouth graduate. I mean, this person is an Ivy League graduate who is met all the qualifications. He's over 21 years of age. He spent over two years reading the law, studying the law under the tutelage of a Baltimore lawyer uh, named Charles Gilman. He also goes beyond that. And he spends some time in Boston uh, observing, you know, courtroom practice uh, in uh, the chambers of an, of an abolitionist lawyer there in Boston uh, because he wants to be in the courtroom. Uh, but when, uh, when uh, Judge Lee uh, says, you know, eh, if only you were white, you know, uh, you could be admitted. That's when uh, Draper says, well, you know, I, I really intend to um, be a lawyer and go to Liberia, where there was a very active effort on the part of uh, the state of Maryland um, uh, to uh, foster interest in free black individuals, um, you know, uh, going there. Uh, and uh, this was Draper's plan. Um, and he was, you know, actively intending that. As soon as he said that, then Lee says, well, you know, I can give you a certificate, write something up that'll help you, you know, when you get to Liberia. I just can't admit you in Maryland because you're not white. Uh, and so Draper actually sort of takes this, you know, he takes what he can get. He's not admitted to practice officially, um, uh, but uh, he's he's been, he's had, heard feedback from a white judge that he he would be qualified 
to practice. And shortly thereafter, he departs for Liberia, where tragically, you know, his story ends not long thereafter. He uh, contracts tuberculosis and is dead a little over a year uh, later. So um, unfortunately, you know, uh, a person with a very bright future, bright prospects, um, you know, uh, does not really get to fulfill that potential. Absolutely. And this is a, a story of uh, all sorts of people who are thwarted at various uh, points along the way. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and talk more with John Browning and Dominic Flowers. They will present a program on the history of black lawyers at an event sponsored by the University of Baltimore Law Forum, Forum next Thursday night. We will have more of our conversation, which was pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls or comments today online. I'm Tom Hall, and you're listening to Midday. Stay with us. This is your public radio, 88.1 WIPR, where you're listening to Midday. And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, I'll speak with a sleep specialist at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Jade Wu has a new book. It's called Hello, Sleep, The Science of Overcoming Insomnia Without medications. So we'll talk about the best way to get some good Z's tomorrow here on Midday. If you just joined us today, we're talking about the history of the African-American legal tradition in Maryland. My guests are Justice John Browning, a retired judge from Texas, and Dominique Flowers, staff attorney at the Maryland Pro Bono Resource Center here in Baltimore, where he works with the courtroom advocacy project. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls our online comments today. So, uh, Dominic Flowers, um, talk about the the impact, the uh, significance, and the importance of uh, the Howard University Law School, uh, which was opened in 1869. That obviously was a place where African Americans could study uh, law. I mean, I, I think its its uh, significance probably can't be overstated. No, I, I, I agree hardly. And I, I just have to do a shout out that that was the uh, school that I went to. And that's precisely for the reason um, due to their legacy of, of really producing some high quality black lawyers. Um, you know, Everett Warren, he was actually the first black attorney who was admitted to the bar um, following the um, case that that uh, got rid of the racial restriction statute in 1885. He was admitted in October 10th, 1885, followed by Joseph Davis, Joseph David, excuse me. And both of them actually went to try some amazing cases um, in the late 1880s and early 1990s. They joined with an organization called the United Brotherhood of Liberty, which was one of the first um, civil rights organizations that actually predated um, the NAACP and was a precursor to the uh, Niagara movement in the early 1900s. And they fought on uh, several cases um, in, in Baltimore um, involving um you know, disputes with, with black people, the Bass, the Bass acts involving um, money challenges, and then even a murder case um, in the infamous Navassa Island case in the Supreme Court in 1890. And they had some wins, they had some losers, but they really went on to distinguish themselves as competent black attorneys. And it seemed to me that it set off kind of a, a, a spark. Um, you then have other lawyers who... Um, uh, go to the University of Maryland, um, Harry Cummings, he was the first black councilman for Baltimore City. 
Um, and then um, also um, another lawyer, Charles Johnson, who both graduated in 1889, and they also started their own law firm. And you also see a backlash um, from the, some white residents. Um, and as a matter of fact, in the early 1890s, you have University of Maryland who um, stops admitting blacks altogether. And that isn't that's that that continues into the 1900s until 1936 with Murray v. Pearson, which was one of the first um, NAACP cases that um, called um, required Maryland to actually admit blacks to the law program. So you see a, a progression of lawyers. And I think that Howard Law, Everett Waring, starting from there, really kind of cascaded into the uh, production of really qualified um, African-Americans throughout the early uh 20th century and in the late 19th century. And uh, Justice Browning, uh, let's talk about Edward Waring, um, the, the uh, again, a, a person you call uh, one of the forgotten firsts. Uh, he was the first black lawyer finally admitted to the Maryland Bar in 1885. What changed? What what was the uh, the thing that got him over over the hump and uh, and got him admitted? Uh, sure. Well, uh, first, let me just uh, add something to Mr. Flowers' uh, comments. I, I don't. Uh, I agree, though. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of Howard Law School. It graduated its first uh, uh, graduating class in 1871. Uh, Ten uh, lawyers who all, you know, had to then go and embark upon this uphill struggle. Many of them went on to become the first black lawyers in the respective states where they started their careers, um, and they faced incredible adversity. Uh, a couple were killed. Uh, one was lynched shortly after arriving in Arkansas to to start a practice. I mean, the mm. the the courage that these lawyers shown uh, was remarkable and inspiring. Uh, it's actually the subject of another law review article I've got coming out in the Howard's Law Journal, looking at the legacy of this first graduating class. Um, many of them went on uh, in other states to. Um, uh, litigate uh, uh, milestone civil rights uh, cases. So uh, I just wanted to add that, that, uh, you know, I have the uh, an incredible, you know, respect for uh, what Howard Law School achieved, knowing that there were these obstacles to uh, admitting um, uh, uh, black students uh, to study law uh, at, you know, the few law schools where there was even any opportunity. Sure. Uh, but but to add to uh, to answer your question about Mr. Waring, um, yes, I mean it, it's incredible what he achieved um, in 1885. He's a he's a newly minted graduate of Howard Law School, and he has the the good fortune uh, to cross paths with uh, Reverend Harvey Johnson, who had started this real precursor to the NAACP, the Brotherhood of Liberty, this coalition of. Uh, black uh, uh, clergy, uh, businessmen, uh, community organizers. And it's really with their support um, and and some critical changes, uh, thanks to, you know, black voting power in Baltimore in changing judicial selection. Um, and so, you know, for the first time, you know, some of these judges on Baltimore Supreme Bench are seeing, hey, I'm kind of here in part due to, you know, support of black voters and uh, and there's some accountability uh, by by 1885 and uh, there's also you know this group the Brotherhood of Liberty led by Reverend Johnson um, has uh, started to um, have some victories now they're using white lawyers out of necessity um, in suing over public accommodations and uh, you know uh, seeking uh, equal rights uh, but as soon as they can you know, make it a priority 
um, they try to and and do uh, recruit uh, Everett Waring. And shortly after Joseph uh, Selden Davis, um, you know, recent Howard Law grads to challenge this race restriction. And uh, and they are um, successful in 1885. And Waring becomes uh, the first um, uh, black lawyer admitted to practice in uh, state courts in Maryland. Um, the uh, He goes on, he and Davis both uh, become kind of the in-house lawyers for the Brotherhood of Liberty. And they're arguing all kinds of civil rights uh, and racial discrimination cases. But as Mr. Flowers mentioned, uh, this culminates in kind of the opportunity of a lifetime for a young lawyer. I mean, five years out, and he is called upon, you know, to argue on the biggest stage of all, the United States Supreme Court, uh, and uh, uh, appeal a murder case, which arose out of some fascinating uh, circumstances. Um, he defended uh, three black men uh, who were convicted of murder. Um, they had actually been uh, one of a group of about 139 uh, black laborers on an island about 30 miles off the coast of um, uh, of, of Guantanamo Bay, actually. It was uh, close to uh, Haiti and close to Cuba called Navassa. And Navassa was what one of what they called a guano island. And guano uh, was uh, literally bird poop. <laughs> and it was rich in phosphates. Phosphates were a primary source of fertilizer. So this was like, you know, gold. Um, and the U.S. government authorized anyone who, you know, came across an atoll, an island, uh, you know, a rock in the middle of the ocean that was rich in these phosphates, uh, this guano, to, um, you know, to claim it in, in the uh, eyes of the United States. And Navassa was one of these. And there was a mining company in the Navassa Phosphate Company that employed these black laborers and a, a smaller number of white managers uh, under horrific working conditions. I mean, uh, it, it was it was medieval. Uh, there were you know horrible punishments, horrible working conditions. It, it was for these freed men. This was like a return to slavery, and um, and at one point things boiled over, and there was a riot, and um, uh, the black laborers um, killed uh, at least five of the white superintendents. And um, when uh, there was eventually some uh, legal intervention, uh, the U.S. Navy uh, shows up. Um, uh, they are brought back. Uh, and where are they brought? They're brought to Baltimore and they're tried in federal court there. Um, and three of these, um, uh, the, the uh, ones who were convicted of murder, uh, they appeal with the aid of, um, uh, you know, ever aware. And. Now, at this time, there had been a few black lawyers, starting in about 1865, who'd been admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court, but no one had ever actually argued. No one had actually ever taken a case and argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, the U.S. Supreme Court Historical Society uh, piqued my interest a couple of years ago when I asked them who was the first black lawyer to argue, and they didn't know the answer. And they said, hey, if you find out, will you tell us? <laughs> and so huh. through my research, I uh, dug up evidence that this was uh, there was no one before wearing. And so I started researching the case, uh, Jones versus United States. 
in which Waring is the advocate. And he makes a very novel legal argument, Tom. He, he says, look, this, these crimes uh, that were committed, uh, these murders, were not committed on U.S. soil. Uh, the U.S. never exercised um, jurisdiction over uh, this. And um, they didn't annex it. They didn't do anything under international law like they uh, did with other uh, territories that would become uh, part of the United States. And, um, and he made a very compelling legal argument that because this didn't meet the requirements under, you know, our law and international law, that the U.S. courts had no jurisdiction over the murder defendants. And it was a, it was a very well-argued point. Um, it was ultimately unsuccessful. The U.S. Supreme Court kind of punts and says, well, um, the president and, you know, the executive branch, uh, you know, gets to say that we're exercising jurisdiction and it really would not be the place of the um you know, a judicial branch uh, to second guess either the legislature or the executive branch. So, you know, we're we're going to stick with there's jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh, but it's an issue that still resonates today. You know, we, even today um, we have uh, litigants uh, going before the U.S. Supreme Court from American Samoa, from Puerto Rico, uh, saying, hey, aren't we entitled to the same constitutional rights as every U.S. citizen? And the Supreme Court really has yet to speak on that. But Everett Waring, first black lawyer, a forgotten first, was one of the first to raise that issue uh, to uh, uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, so it's not only an, an historic event, you know, just the, the fact that he actually argued a case before the Supreme Court, but he had uh, a really uh, influential legal theory to defend his clients. And Dominique Flowers, um, you know, Edward Waring lost that case. He lost a bunch of cases that uh, were very difficult given the the time and the kinds of uh, judges he was appearing before. Uh, And even just making a living as a lawyer wasn't all that easy because obviously white people weren't going to hire a black lawyer and many of the black potential clientele couldn't afford uh, to hire a lawyer. So, um, you know, they, a lot of these uh, people who are important to the, the very early history of the African-American legal tradition here in Maryland and even elsewhere uh, were, were, you know, doing historically significant things. But, boy, it, was, it must have been difficult to put food on the table. No, I, and, and actually what you see is with a lot of black lawyers, um, because of the difficulties, as you stated, you'll see that many of them in the late 18th, 1800s and 1890s and early 20th century, many of them actually took on other careers in politics. Um, I'm doing a lot of research on Harry Cummings, as I mentioned before, the first um, the first black councilman for Baltimore City, um, who ran and, and successfully won the uh, council seat in 1890. And so he practiced as a lawyer before, um, you know, winning the seat as councilman. And he also became a community advocate. And many of the lawyers were also banded together because individually they really didn't have the power or, you know, prestige, but together they really worked on a lot of civil rights era, um, legislation, legislation efforts. Um, there are several anti-suffrage, um, laws put into effect in the early 1900s and 1904, um, one is the poll amendment that really restricted the rights of, of African-Americans to vote. And so several lawyers band together. Um, with um, including um, Ashby Hawkins, who ran for Congress in 1920, as well as uh, Cummings, to really fight these laws. And so they used their legal 
um, knowledge and their legal expertise, not just for the practice of law, but for the advancement of African-Americans in politics and the community leadership. Yeah, and uh, organizations like the NAACP are certainly in their debt. Uh, the civil rights movement in general, uh, as Mr. Browning makes uh, clear in, in his article, uh, you know, just simply uh, had, a, had a, a much firmer foundation to build on because of the likes of Edward Everett Waring and, uh, and the others who were uh, in his generation. That's Dominique Flowers. He's a staff attorney at the Maryland Pro Bono Resource Center here in Baltimore. Mr. Flowers, thank you so much for your time and, uh, and your important work. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Tom. Justice John Browning is a retired judge in the Texas 5th District Court of Appeals. He is the distinguished jurist in residence on the faculty of the Faulkner University Thomas Good Jones School of Law in Montgomery, Alabama. He's also a trial lawyer with the Spencer Fain firm in Plano, Texas. Justice Browning, thank you for your time and your work as well. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. So Justice Browning and Dominic Flowers will be presenting a program called Blazing the Trail, Maryland's First Black Lawyers and the Legacy They Built. Starts at 6 o'clock next Thursday night, February 16th at the University of Baltimore School of Law. Coming up next here on Midday, a theater review with Jay Wynn Russick. We're going to talk about High School Coven at the Strand Theater. That's after a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. It's Midday. Stay with us. This is your public radio, 881 WYPR.